Good evening there, you're with Melanie Hoskin here on Purple Psychology Podcast and we're here with Nisha O'Reilly. Hi Hello. Nisha. Hello. Of the Purple Learning Project. Right, there's 46 or 45 um, episodes of this podcast behind us right now. This is the first one that I'm interviewing you on and delighted to be interviewing you. Can you tell us about the last 45 and, and how you've got to the 46th and where you want to go with this? Yeah, I suppose there's been a bit of a shift along the way. Um, the idea behind the podcast is that it was a sort of an, a rare kind of insight into my mind and how I think and how I work, um, particularly the sort of methods side, the Purple Learning Project, which I don't really talk about, to be honest. I tend to keep my cards very close to my chest on it. Um, I think the methods are quite powerful, and I'm always very aware of the influence and what they can be used for. And I've kind of really got a big debate at the moment about taking my work further in the world and so on. So this podcast was about being able to have more people have access to my ideas and my thinking. It sort of reflects me in the sense that it's very broad. There's educational, there's business topics, there's topics for adults and so on. And what we'll probably do is record blocks of four. And what you probably find Mm. every time is that some of it will relate to younger people and to parents. Some will relate to teenagers and some will relate to adults. Um, And that kind of reflects my daily work. Okay. Now, you've built up a, a good database of podcasts and you've covered many topics. You've been doing this for eight years. You started this eight years ago, um, Purple Learning Project. Hmm. What is that about? Well, when I started eight years ago, I bizarrely opened the doors to a school called the Homer Club. I just decided overnight that I had a lot of ideas in my head, that I'd done very well educationally myself but it had been too much like hard work. Mm-hmm. Um, so I set up a school to basically have a, a lab space, really, to prove all the ideas in my head. And it was quite terrifying. Um, I had to wait for the first students to come to the door. In the beginning, they were all teenagers in secondary school. Very quickly, by the following autumn, it had sort of spanned to sort of four-year-olds. Um, a lot of primary school students with a lot of difficulties. The only thing everybody had in common was that they weren't doing well in school. And the reason for the slogan for the Purple Learning Project was to develop your love of learning because everybody loved learning. Everybody was doing really badly in school and hated school. They mm. came to the, the, the homework club, mm. but yet they loved it. And so gradually what happened was I began then to work in the business world. I began to do other things. And I had set up this perfect space. Um, I had a, a training with the teachers you know, a couple of times a year. They were a really amazing group of people. Still work with a lot of them. And... There was this wonderful atmosphere in the building and it was perfect, but I found that the people who spent an hour with us went back into the school environment and did brilliantly across the board. So spending an hour in a perfect environment meant that you could go back and spend you know, 35 hours a week in a school environment mm. and, and actually still achieve in everything that that one air made that much of a difference and that people would suddenly join the Girl Guides and the Scouts or do well on a football team or, you know, start playing, you know, for their local clubs and all sorts of things. There was all sorts of implications to it. So I took the very difficult decision four years ago to then make it virtual because I wanted to go international because I'd set it up on the business model of how um, conventional private education worked. Hmm. And... Basically, we got results too quickly, and it was like a revolving door. And people realised that they could send their leaving cert students to me six weeks before the leaving cert, and they still get through the leaving cert, which isn't a very good business model when you're trying to run a school, <laughs> right? And you got massive overheads. There were also, you know, there wasn't really a salary element in it for me. There was a lot of a lot of things going on, mm-hmm. and um, and and I suddenly found that I couldn't really work internationally. I found it was kind of tied to one area. Every time I did an interview on the radio, which I hate doing, we can talk about that. 
every time I did one of these interviews, I would have people from all sorts of places in rural Ireland ring me up and go, please help me. And I, I didn't know how to help them. So suddenly I sort of realised that we needed to be working in people's homes, either online or sending the team there, that we could work with them for four or six hours. We didn't need to care about the revolving door. And I then set up the method side to the project so that it was it was more defined for the people that I help in the system now and the people that I'll help in the future. So because people now who want help now, don't, they don't care about the future, mm. right? But I do. Um, and it went from being the perfect environment to the completely non-perfect environment all the time. Okay. And there was also a missing part to it too because I wasn't getting to see the home dynamic and I, I was only getting a snapshot of what was going on. And since I really cared about the personality and the environment and all of the factors in that, I wanted to be able to work with all of them. And in order for you to work <laughs> with, with clients, the clients being the student, did you feel that it's important for you to meet them in their environment? I never meet them in their environment. Okay. I always meet them in a neutral space. Okay. Um, and and what does that achieve? How, how do you well, that was assess the them or... Well, yeah, that, that was the other interesting thing. There was, there was two problems. One, the environment was too perfect, so I didn't see all the problems. Mm. And two, everybody cried on me because it was a school environment, they thought, that they came to. And somebody got them and somebody gave them attention. The teenage boys in particular would really drop off the chair when somebody cared about them. And everybody cried. And you can imagine how intense that is. Yeah. So now I always work in public spaces with people because they never cry. Okay. And, and it, there's just a better boundary. It's not my space and it's not your space. It's neutral space. And I pick the environments depending on what I want to see because they're not perfect. Yeah. And I suppose, I mean, kids kids crying. I suppose even, you probably even had a few parents crying. I had everybody <laughs> crying. With this I, child. You know, no, I mm. had everybody mm. crying. Yeah. You know, and, and that's a bit too much. When you've met enough people in a day, that's a bit too much to, to handle. Yeah, yeah. Kind of makes me think where they must have been that, that they kind of met someone and kind of everything comes out, you know. Yeah. I'm a life strategist. When people come to me, they're usually at the end of their tether with stuff and, and first thing they do is cry. Yeah. Because they're, I'm here, I'm here now. I yeah. don't know where it's going, but, but phew, you know. Yeah. For, for me, the thing was that, that everybody uh, said that I got them and that I saw yeah. them and that I understood them. So and, there's, heard. and there still is that element in every person but I managed to diffuse mm. um, how, how they feel. Um, why do you think that they can't go into a school and talk about their children's um, issues or problems or, you know, within the school? That they, that they can't have, have these problems sorted out there rather than... But obviously by the time they get to you, they're extremely stressed. They could be at the end of avenues or whatever. That they can't go into mm. a school and say, you know, my, my son or my daughter is having these problems here. Can we fix these? Well, I think the big thing for me is that my focus, um, seemingly uh, other people pay attention more often to what I say. I've only started recording my mm. quotes in the last mm. year, but seemingly I say there's no problems, only solutions, right? Yeah. And so what happens in the school is that everyone might focus on the problem, the person's failing. Mm. Okay, So that's the mm. only thing that all the people who came to the homework club had in common, right? Okay. But what was going on and the reasons for it were very different, and because I suppose I think like an oceanographer, which is what I am, I looked below the surface for everything yeah, yeah. that's happening below the surface. I always yeah. look for the reasons. Mm. And then there's no blame and it's not your fault. Mm. And then also a lot of people go under the radar and you'll hear things like, oh, well, he's always been brilliant at sports. He's always been lousy in school. 
or he's never been able to do maths or you know and then you start to chart back that there's very good reasons for that oh he's always hated reading books he's never wanted to read you know but there's always a reason mm. and and I suppose I was looking for the reasons so that makes it a big difference and do you find that reason easy to get to I do okay but but I'm I think that that too in order to clone myself and to take the work forward that's probably my most challenging aspect okay and that's there's a lot of methodology and there is a system and there is a structure behind it which I find slightly terrifying at times mm. as to how much you can see but there is the me factor element in what how quickly I can get to know somebody and I find this quite funny because we'll talk about this in the next episode in mm. terms of time factors to work with people yeah, yeah. because I always know people a lot quicker than they know I think I do so you must be very insightful yes and very intuitive yes yes, okay. yes. and that must be great for your clients Yes, I think it is. Yeah, it is. It's really good for them. I, yeah. I see it both as a, a gift and a curse. It has it has mm. two sides for me. And I switch it off a lot with friends. And I mm. don't talk about my work to a lot of my friends. And I, my, my parents don't even know what I do, really. Mm. You know, I, I don't talk about a lot of it. I keep a lot of people's secrets. But I also have learned to be quite um, unreactive and quite contained in my personality so that people don't really know what I see and what I don't. Okay. So you've been doing this for eight years. You opened your, your, your doors eight years ago, which was, uh, I would imagine, kind of scary. It, it was a new thing, was it? A new concept? or? Yeah, it was a completely new concept. Tell. It was a completely new concept. I think it's just me. I, I think I had a conversation at home and I realised I should do this. And um, I just went and did it. Like People asked me, oh, but how did you do that? I was like, well, I tell my practical things. I went and found a building to rent. I set up a website. I delivered flyers you know, in the whole neighbourhood. I had friends who walked you know, around in the snow to deliver flyers, you know, mm. make everybody know about it. I did interviews. I did everything. You know, I, like, I talk about the practical aspects of mm. it, but yeah, I just went and did it. And what was the uptake on that? Because that's the way most businesses start. They, get, they grab in a load of friends and they give them a load of flyers and send them off and what was the uptake on it? Well, I think a lot of people didn't know what I was about and it was taking a chance on me. There was a real turning point when I did interviews with the local newspapers. Mm. And, and like that, a bit like the interview I did with you, mm. I had somebody on the far side of the table who just wanted to know what I did mm. and, and didn't want to score points or set me up against anybody else or mm. have a competition you know, as to who was doing what and mm. you know, all those things, which I wasn't interested in. So they just wanted to know what I was about and I told them what I was about and they printed that and then everybody read it and they understood what I was about and then suddenly the, the doors opened and everybody came to me. And then then those first people who came to me they talked to their friends and their neighbours and then they sent other people and then some of the parents started to go back to some of the organisations that had very specific difficulties mm. and they had already heard about me and I suppose maybe two years down the road I reached out to those organisations and at that stage they'd already heard about me and mm. they were quite happy to put me as a referral because they, they'd heard about me from parents. I was a real person that I had to prove myself and my mm. results had to speak for themselves. Hmm. And do you find at media, do you find that they that they're looking for the information, or they're looking for problems, they're picking holes, or they're they're looking for <laughs> they're looking for a massive debate. And and I, okay, and I suppose I started a debate five years ago on homework and how mm. much why I hated homework because it was a real problem in the school. Mm. And as a result, I've done an awful lot of interviews 
I describe them to people as like tennis matches where you get lobbed a question, you bat it back, then the next one comes in and you have no sense of whether you've got to talk about what you wanted to talk about. There's no continuity to it. You're always trying to, from a place of defence, and mm. um, you usually set up against somebody to disagree with you. Then they read out all the negative comments that have been phoned in while you've been on the interview just to wind you up. And you really, you get off the phone and you feel like you've done 10 rounds of Mike Tyson and you don't mm. really know what you've achieved. And then all your friends bring you up and tell you you did great or you get yeah. random emails in really nice to, to see those but but you really don't so the interview I did with you a few months ago mm. um, on exam stress one of my friends described it to me it was like sitting having coffee with me there was a sense of I could just talk and just be me but you see I th- and I think that's the difference in terms of how, how you conduct an interview I come from the person sitting at home with the problem and I ask questions for them I'm not interested in a debate you don't want to use the service or you don't yes I don't care but but I'm gonna I'm going to come from the the, the the place of somebody that has a problem or they're upset or they're worried and I'm going to ask their questions for them I I don't care for picking holes in things you're the expert you should have I haven't got used to that concept of being an expert yet I, I remember that moment in, in the homework club you know mm. where I'd um I sent home a lot of information after the first term as to where mm. everybody was at. Mm. And suddenly a lot of parents wanted to talk to me because suddenly they realised that maybe that they signed up for more mm. and there was a lot more going on than they'd originally thought about and that it wasn't mm. a grind school. I hate grind schools, but anyway. You know, I suddenly found myself just before Christmas with the hall packed out and all these people waiting to talk to me. I was like, why does not want to talk to me? You know, I do remember that <laughs> turning point. <laughs> yeah, I do remember that little turning point. Um, why do you hate grind schools? Um, why do you dislike them? Let's not say you hate them. No, I do hate them. I'll right. be honest. I've, I've, I've even done a blog post on why I hate them. Because uh, the only thing that happens is it makes me grind my teeth. Um, it's uh, it's really intense. It's all about learning off. It's all about pressure. It's all about the content. It's not about the, how, how we actually learn or why we want to learn or mm. education or liking it. It doesn't suit most people. It causes massive stress. And I just hate the term grind. I just, I don't, I don't find it positive. Um, it's not help, you know. I think help would be great because mm. uh, that's what most people want at that stage if they are going for okay. those classes. Yeah. A lot of the more refined ones, it's just about narrowing it down, picking out what's on the paper. Okay. And and that has its implications too because that's what's scaling up the number of A's and what you have to get to get an A, and it's it that's sort of causing a huge social divide, particularly mm. in Ireland. Well, it does it everywhere, um, but but particularly here, mm. I see that a lot. You mentioned earlier that you can take a leading cert student um, six to eight weeks before their actual exam and push them over the line with it. How can you do that? Well, I've taken people in four hours from 16% to 60. And it's not just me, like there's a team teaching them as well. So but how do you do that? What's the, what's the process? It's, uh, it's the mindset. It's understanding who they are. It's understanding how they need to learn. It's understanding what's gone wrong. It's uh, treating them like a human being. It's um, demystifying it. It's, it's making it doable. It's um, dividing it up into the parts that they need to do. And it's giving them the core skill that they didn't have. It's, it's never the content. For mm. me, the content is irrelevant. Mm. It's, it's just the core skills. And if you focus on the core skills, well, then they've actually probably taken in quite a lot of content mm. by osmosis within the classes already and mm. um, or whatever study they've tried to do. The rest of it is about the skills and how to apply that. 
Okay, because an awful lot of the kids seem to focus on the content yes. and the study, and the, we're, we're actually coming up to mocks now um, in secondary schools and the level of stress and anxiety. I mean, I know we've done an interview on this. I, <laughs> yes. I know you don't want to go there again. I'm just fascinated with it uh, because I think it's so damaging. I, I think Hugely. it's so worrying. Um, you know, and I think in terms of mental health in children, um, and I suppose you are talking about 17 and 18 year olds, like, but still they're kids, like, and they're dealing with that amount of pressure. Right, I won't go there. Sorry. No, no, no I, I, to- I totally agree, and I'm, I'm dealing with all of that in my inbox at the yeah. moment. Yeah. from people and trying to help them and trying to give them um, what I always think is that we don't do a good enough evaluation of the mocks afterwards because mm-hmm. that is the point of the mocks yeah. the yeah. evaluation of the mocks is not to decide that that's the grade you're going to get at gym because mm-hmm. it's not mm-hmm. and there's one school in particular and I'm sure there's a few others that do this but they really do my nut every year because what they do after the mocks is they walk into a room for mm-hmm. a particular subject mm-hmm. and they put half the people sitting on the left hand side of the room and half of the people sitting on the right hand side of the room and the people sitting on whatever side that determines what level you're doing in the subject okay I don't don't find that constructive or positive would you find that positive? no, not at all no not at all. So, uh, yeah. Okay, I'm not going there because yeah, all right. Yeah. Um. In terms of um, over the last eight years, what do you feel has changed for you? I have already answers. Hmm. That that's an interesting one. I realised last year that was a real turning point for me. Last year, seven years within it, I wanted to know why no two dyslexics um got the same result with the same help when I opened the school. What like. And I also wanted to know why it was such a big thing to be dyslexic, considering how many famous people there are that are dyslexic. Mm. And then if you look at the list of dyslexic people, like, you know, there doesn't seem to be any comparison when I read about them in school myself, you know, between Cher, Steve Redgrave and Jamie Oliver. You Mm. know, what do they have in common? Mm. So a lot of the questions by focusing on what's going on under the surface, I, I feel like I have a lot of those answers. And it's far more refined in my head. A lot of the things that I did intuitively, I've discovered I had really good reasons for doing those. Okay. Um, in terms of... Um, well, well, that, that's really good personal learning as well, isn't it? In terms of development. It's huge. And, and, and I, have to, I have to feel that I'm developing as a person, which mm-hmm. is why I seem to reinvent every two years with the new project. So mm-hmm. I went from the Homework Club to Confidence Club. Somewhere in the middle of that, I had Purple Learning Project for the Methods parked over to one side. And then two years after Confidence Club, I, I refined homeschooling. Mm-hmm. So we, because we've always been homeschooling, mm-hmm. but we really mm-hmm. are homeschooling now. So, um, so yeah, so I have to do that too as a person. Hmm. Do, you, do you travel with it? Yes, but I, I, I try to do as much work as I can online because hmm. I don't find it constructive to travel. I don't find it a constructive use of my time. Hmm. But So I, I do a huge amount of work online. And it was really funny last week because I was working with Australia in the morning and I was working with the States in the evening and doing Ireland in between. Okay. Because um, with time zones, you feel a bit like Santa Claus flying around the world. Um, <laughs> You know, so it's quite funny yeah, what you can yeah. pack in. So that would be like Skype or something like yes, that. You do, yes, all right, yes, okay. Yeah. yeah, because I mean, Skype is, I mean, it's so good uh, in, in terms of delivering sessions overline, like uh, online. Hmm. Yeah, it's actually brilliant. In terms of, um, you say that it's important to constantly check in with yourself. Yes. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so let's finish up on this one. You have to have a really good sense of where you're at and where you're going. 
what your aims were when you started out, that you still have those in your head, because it's very easy to get sidetracked along the way, what, what you wanted to achieve. Mm. Um, so I started out and I wanted to achieve that I wanted to take literacy intelligence out of the same sentence. So I really care about literacy, okay. right? So there's a lot of other things I've done in the meantime, but I still really care about that. It's a good sense of where you're at and what you've learned. And I set up, um, I, I keep very good diaries, I keep very good journals, I keep very good case notes, mm. um, I keep um, a methods book separate. I have four, four notebooks on the go permanently, and they all have a different purpose. I think it's really important if you want to leave a legacy work that you've got a really clear idea of what you've actually learned this month. And then I also um, break up my goals and my intentions every month. I write out a list of what I want to achieve, so I actually achieve them. And those can be as simple as books you want to read, or... Um, people you want to meet or something you want to watch or some film you want to go to like it doesn't have to be mm. you know all about work which is really important as well mm. and I tend to take inspiration from a huge diverse group of mm. areas which is why mm. I think it's very hard to say what I do um, and I work with a huge diverse cross-section of people whether they're business arts sports whatever as well too so I do think it's really good and it's really interesting I read an article recently the bullet journals which have particularly taken off are very mm. good for mental health and I can see why, because if you're very visual, and they are very visual, um, so it's kind of like rolling an intentions task list and a diary all into one. And it means that you create a sort of a legend, a bit like a map, mm. and you tick things off as you've done them. And there's a real sense of being able to chart it. So mm. I have all of my notes from the first day I set up the school. I have my notes and I have my diary and I know when I met people and I know when I met students and I know when I met you know, people that were to be mentors of some capacity along the way, or whatever mm. I did. So there's a really good sense of time frame too, and mm. the bullet journal gives you that, which is great, and so I can see why it's really good for your mental health, and to chart things in that way. So students could use uh, these bullet diaries? Yeah, just, just, just Google it, bullet journals. I'll stick it up on our Facebook page, an article to it. But, yeah. but yes, it, it's, it's, um, you can use any book, you can mm. use any diary to do it, any plain notebook. Mm. Uh, squared notebooks obviously work great for it. And mm. um, you just you create your own legend and your own system that suits you. So they might be, be able then to measure um, what they're doing, yes. what, how far they've come and where they need to go. Yeah, and how long it's taken them to get to certain places. Okay, and also identify maybe issues along the way that they... Yeah, things, really things that you want to refine or tasks maybe you didn't get to. Like, like I don't always get to all my task lists every month, mm-hmm. but sometimes mm-hmm. I have to roll it over and that's not the end of the world either. Yeah, yeah. Because sometimes... That's a brilliant tool. Yes, it is. It's fantastic. Yeah. Okay, we're going to leave it there. Are we? Yes. Would you like to leave it there? Uh, this is Purple Psychology Podcast. I'm Melanie Hoskin and I was talking to Nisha O'Reilly. Thank you very Thanks much. Thanks a million. Thank you.